Pubcast. If you have a, a longstanding grief, the acupuncturist would assume that you've got some kind of a lung, a lung issue. Um, the lungs and, 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 um, and, and griefs very closely connected. Another way around, too. Um, if you had a grief, they would assume that you'd have a... What is coming getting these backwards? Yeah, if you have a lung problem, they would assume there's a grief issue. So these things are hardwired. Welcome to the Liberated Healer podcast, where we touch on a variety of topics in the world of spirituality, energetic healing, and everything in between and beyond. Take an adventure on a shooting star with your host, Gina, and offering their wisdom, guidance, and everlasting love and support. Hi, everybody. It is Gina Cavalier, Liberated Healer Podcast. So happy to be with you today, and thank you for joining us and all of your support and liking and sharing, and everybody has been really wonderful. Um, you help us continue to do this uh, every day, and we appreciate you. Uh, today, I have uh, Jerry Cantor on. He wrote this book, The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness, um, Homeopathy for Existential Stress. So thank you and welcome, Jerry. Nice to have you. My pleasure, Gina. Thank you for having me. So um, this is just a book that's going to have to stay at my bedside for quite a while. Um, there's just so much to get into. So I'd love to try to unpack and inspire people to kind of go more into this direction. So you can tell us a little bit about yourself for a context and about uh, kind of the theme of the book and what got you here or your yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, I've had a couple of careers before I became a homeopath. Uh, I was, uh, I had a long career as an acupuncturist and, uh, Chinese medical theory is very useful in talking about alternative med- medical ideas, much, be- much more effective than, uh, conventional medicine, which seems to neglect consciousness, uh, just would prefer to pe- treat the body as if it's just a machine. Um, but in Chinese medicine in particular, in the, in the theory, you know, the mind body connections are hardwired. Uh, so there's, it's not a problem of convincing anybody that, oh, gee, there's a, a stress element here to your condition. For example, if you went to an acupuncturist and you said you have loose stools, the acupuncturist would automatically assume that you worry too much. And the other way around, if you had uh, uh, loose stools, the acupuncturist would automatically assume that, uh, oh, I said that. If you, had, if you were obsessive and worrying, would assume that you would have some problem with your stools. If you have a, a longstanding grief, the acupuncturist would assume that you've got some kind of a lung, a lung issue. Um, the lungs and 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 um, and, and griefs very closely connected. Another way around too. Um, if you had a grief, they would assume that you'd have a. What is coming? Getting these backwards? Yeah, if you have a lung problem, they would assume there's a grief issue. So these things are hardwired. In homeopathy, it's it's even more powerful. We cannot you cannot find a remedy without knowing the mental and the emotional uh, features of the of of uh, the person that would fit into the application of that remedy. You can't do it. Um, anyway, I was an acupuncturist for a long, long time. And then, I don't know, uh, I honestly think um, I was called to homeopathy because uh, I was not at least interested in it at all until um, I, I can't even explain what happened. I just woke up and said I had to become one, thinking originally that I would just be attaching remedy selection to my usual acupuncture, and it didn't work out that way at all. Um, it's not a simple attachment. I just started studying it, and I realized I fell in love with, with Materia Medica, which is the study of the remedies and uh, what they do. And when you do that, you find out to your astonishment that everything is alive. Everything has a consciousness, every substance, every plant, every mineral compound, 
And these things are discovered by rigorous science. Um, homeopathic proving involves pe people under blinded conditions, not knowing what they're taking um, on a regular basis of uh, uh, ingesting some kind of uh, some kind of substance, not a gross enough amount to do, do any harm, but in a gross amount, much more than in a homeopathic remedy, which could be a plant, it could be a, the venom of a, of, a, of, a, of a spider or a snake, tiny, tiny amount that uh, would be enough to produce in a bunch of random people a certain set of very peculiar identifying characteristics. So that's the inverse of the law of similars, which is in homeopathy, which is like yours like. When you're researching a substance, I guess you could call it the law of inculcation because you're creating the state under research conditions. And uh, you know, in these, in these volunteers, healthy volunteers, homeopathy is researched on healthy people, not on sick people. So anyway, that information gets transferred to the homeopathic materia medica, which are these textbooks, which are full of this information about that substance, which is what I fell in love with this particular book. And what I love about the materia medica is how honest it is. Um, it contains not just pathological information, but um, positive information too. So every substance, um, and this comes through the provings, has a positive effect and also negative effects. And homeopaths don't care because anything will lead anything that leads to the selection of the remedy matters. And I'd contrast that, this is a long answer to your question, but to two other books that, that we rely on. One is the, the physician's desk reference, which talks about drugs and sort of likes to assume, you know, poo-poo the side effects of the drug, like they're inconsequential or they're accidental. They're not. They're absolutely a part of what the drug does. And anybody who watches TV and sees all the commercials for the drugs and the long list of terrible conditions underneath that's associated with that would know that. And the other book that's, that bookends the homeopathic materia medica would be a toxicology text, which says, oh, these are all the poisonous effects of this particular substance. Homeopathic remedies are made from substances which are, are, are their medicines and, and their toxins. Um, and uh, in a tiny amount, the remedy cures what it would otherwise produce in a healthy individual under research conditions. Anyway, I, I, I find, found that the existential issues that are embedded in the substances, when you really study them, that's what really drew my attention and made me fall in love with homeopathy. And that brings us back to this particular book I've produced now, which is very much about the, the, the deep existential issues that are embedded you know, within each of these substances. And I've organized them as in a certain way, according to uh, philosophical principles that I've learned. And yes. um, that also implies that chronic illness that these remedies treat is, are all rooted in existential problems. By which I mean, you know, people use the word existential a lot these days, especially with regard to climate change. Oh my God, climate's changing, we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die. And then people describe that as an existential threat. Um, it means more than that. It's not just, oh my God, we're going to die. It's mean, what's the, what's the meaning here? What's the purpose of this? And uh, in my book, I've identified five profoundly existential questions that are the kind of the backbone for all the other, for like subcategories of those questions that uh, all, all have um, remedies connected with them. And we'll get into a few of those, you know, a few of those five just for, um, to get people started. Um, because this is some if you if you have any kind of um, desire to fall into this, you really do need the book because it's so detail oriented. Um, and it's interesting because um, I did go to a regular doctor today and you just kind of diagnosed me, which I think is so funny. And, you know, everything always aligns up spiritually at the time that you need it. But um, 
So yeah, I've had a little minor lung thing, just minor, minor, but, but always like a, a mild phlegm uh, and I'm never sick. I haven't been sick, uh, uh, but it's just this phlegm that keeps coming up. And you said that it's real, that lung automatically would really lead to grief. And I've had a very grief ridden year, it, intense, very, a lot of things I'm working through and I'm doing really well with it, but it was very intense grief. So and um i've had um some back issues as well and i went into the regular doctor and he didn't even look at me he says you're fine there's nothing and he wouldn't even know nothing else i was like not even any advice no guidance no nothing so um you know i it's just it's it's uh and i kind of went because i was hoping to get maybe an mri or an x-ray or something on my back but it's uh, I was just like, of course, you know, that's why I always go and talk to people like you, because this is where we all are turning to. This is the real information. We need help. We're not feeling good. We need some answers and you just don't get them for the most part anymore. So thank you again, because, you know, people need to live a full life as much as possible and feeling good is such a, and to have it when you said that lungs associated with grief. To me, that was, I'm, I mean, I honestly never heard that. Never. It's funny. So it's also just kind of advanced placement common sense. When you sob, you know, your, your, your whole body, you're, you're, you're actually, you would feel it in your lungs, just the act of sobbing. You feel it there. I'll say some other things. You know, conventional medicine is, is all diagnosis driven. Um, and that's the diagnoses are in large part just labels that are attached to something. You can take the label off, put another one on. And there are fashions and trends in, in pathology all the time. Uh, homeopathy is not dependent on these diagnoses at all. We'll write them down. We'll you know take a you know make a note of them. Sometimes there's information attached attached to that. But in 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 my in my country, <laughs> uh, people with the same people with the same diagnosis would all get different remedies, and uh, the same remedy could be used for many different kinds of conditions. Flipping that around. Yeah, and um, you incorporate. Yeah. Um spirituality into um the work that you do and can you just briefly tell me what you think um i heard you on another uh podcast talk about emmanuel swedenborg and a lot of people know that i have a book coming out from the swedenborg foundation so uh i was like oh he's no he's talking about swedenborg can you just talk about i call he's like my, i call him like my father because he's helped me i feel like he was there when i wrote my book wow wow yeah, Swedenborg was a great, great genius. He was a contemporary of Newton's. Uh, I don't. I fantasized about writing a novel where they met each other or something at some point. Um, they, I don't think they did, but uh, they surely would have known about each other. What What Swedenborg is known for in the homeopathic community, in particular, is this adage: "As above, so below." Are you familiar with that? Yes. Um, he he was uh, just such a genius um, in in every every field that he studied. He had many patents in mining. Um, and he, then he got suddenly very interested in the body and he decided to find out where the soul was. So he made a detailed study of anatomy and he couldn't find the soul <laughs> by looking at the anatomy. So he, on his own, he invented a kind of self-hypnosis, some kind of hypnagogic state. And he would go into these trances, how he invented this, how he figured this out, I don't know. But in those trances, he was just so gifted in so many ways. He became deeply, deeply mystical. And he wrote hundreds of books which detail his explorations in the mystic trance, whereby he apparently, according to him, and his accounts are so detailed, visited heaven and hell and talked to dead people in great detail. And he was famous for it. It was actually proven out. 
the Queen of Sweden had a, was really tormented about the death of, uh, I think, a, a relative of hers. She called Swedenborg to her and asked, you know, asked these questions and asked Swedenborg to interview this dead relative. And Swedenborg said, all right, you know, and he went off and did it and came back with answers that only he, only the queen could have possibly related to. It was unquestionably that he had done this. Um, and uh, at a dinner party once, he just got very, very agitated. He was living, the dinner party was hundreds of miles from Stockholm. And he just got very agitated because he said, Stockholm's on fire, Stockholm's on. And that was exactly true at that moment. Just huge powers. So his, his writings were so extensive and so popular that uh, an entire church, which was named, was created for him. He didn't have any interest in creating a church. This was all within the Christian tradition. And um, he was just very interested in exploring, really existentially, what the meaning of life was. And his, his uh, okay, let me put, put it this way. His idea of God, the Godhead, which almost got him excommunicated even within the Christian church, was that it was shaped like a human being. Uh, there was a, the Godhead was just shaped like the human being. This is something like in Judaism, the Kabbalah, which is also shaped like a human, human being. And there are angels working in every part of, that, of, that, of that, that shape. And they all have specific jobs. So here's where the above, as above, so below plays out. If you have a problem with your spleen on earth, uh, if I guess what Swedenborg would do, he would go and you want you want to know about it. You would go and talk to the angels who are working in the spleen up there, and you would find out what the spiritual purpose, what their spiritual purpose was, mm-hmm. and uh, that was so. So knowing what happened above would have implications for what's going on down below, and this is kind of at the core of homeopathic thinking, which is a uh, spiritual forensics. It's not enough to know what the symptoms are and uh, you know, what's going on physically. They have, as, as I keep making this point over and over again, they have a spiritual issue. There's a, something that the angels could explain to you what is going wrong there. <laughs> if you follow this, this yeah. kind of reasoning. Um, and there's a lot more to it, but there were so many books he wrote and they're just absolutely spectacular because they're written in, in, a, in a little bit of an archaic language, but um, uh, I don't have to sell, sell it to you, be, you know, speaking yeah. to the choir. He's just an amazing writer <laughs> and, and thinker. And he had a huge influence over on the transcendental move, transcendentalist movement in the United States, and uh, homeopathy was a, was a really a big part of that. So he's considered the, the, the spiritual godfather of homeopathy. Oh, uh, thank you for that. I've never heard it put so simply uh, about that side of him, um, and it can get a lot really convoluted um, because the text is so um, in so many different directions. So I really appreciate that. Sometimes um, I go back and read his his. There are books which are compilations of, of his books. So if you, you can't read everything he wrote, there'll be somebody who says, I'm just going to study Swedenborg from the point of view of his understanding of physiology. So I can look in that book and see what he thought the angels of the lungs were doing, you know, or, the, or uh, some parts of, of that, human, that being was so, so special and, and sacred that he didn't have access to them, like the, the part of the being that related to reproduction. That was... Uh, almost off grounds to him. He said, he's very honest about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I actually, in my uh, youth, when I was about 19, I was having a bad time and I was actually a heavy suicidal ideation point in my life. And um, I was in a coffee shop and I saw a book that said conversations by angels. And I felt like it was talking to me and it, you know, it was just one of those free books. And I sat down and it just, like for that moment really just took me out of that space. And 
Um, so when the publisher asked me, why do you want to be with Swedenborg Foundation? I told him that story. It's a part of the whole, my, and even my, in my book, we talk about this. It's like, you have to eat well, you have to, it's the people you're around, it's the place that you live. It's, you know, all that stuff. That's exactly, you know, what you're expressing to people. What about, um, so chronic illnesses, obviously, um, also I had chronic fatigue syndrome for about 20 years and I got rid of it. And uh, it definitely was a part spiritually, I got rid of it. So I think that's very interesting. Do you have any um, insight into something like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia? Again, we, it's not, homeopathy is not diagnosis driven, but I can talk about some things, some remedies in relationship to that, just yes. to give you an idea of how much, how much fun it is to, to do the homeopathy part. So one yeah. famous remedy for, for uh, prostration, we, we use old language, exhaustion, uh, just can't get can't get yourself out of bed having to put really put a uh, make a huge effort would be the remedy carbo vegetabilis. So what is carbo vegetabilis? It is char vegetable charcoal, vegetable charcoal. Now let's think about that for a moment. You have to imagine this is again kind of fun, but it's advanced placement common sense. If you're a piece of vegetable charcoal, you have like just a little bit of oxidative material left in there that can burn. You're almost completely burnt out. You're burnt out, but there's a little bit left there. And you can, you can, you can, you can oxidize the, the rest of that by blowing on it, lighting it and, and blowing on it, right? You'll, a little bit less of it will, 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 will glow. Um, so how does that pertain to somebody in the state of exhaustion? Not everybody's in this, but it would pertain to somebody who, uh, often this would be a case after someone has recovered from a very debilitating illness, might need this remedy carbo vegetabilis. And here are the interesting, you know, peculiar keynotes of that, that go well beyond the diagnosis. Um, they would be chilled. They would be cold. They would like, like a completely burnt out, almost completely burnt out piece of charcoal, but they would like it when the, like a little breeze is put on them, like the fan is on them. So they'll tell you, yeah, I'm cold, but I, I, I like, love it when there's a little breeze on me. And that's the feeling of that little breeze promoting the glow in the charcoal. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So it's very, it's, you really enter the consciousness of that particular substance in order to, to apply that remedy. And you can't do it otherwise. You know, it's not like, oh, uh, you know, prostration disease, take this. You kind of have to understand the, the feeling behind that, you know. But there are other remedies where people are, are profoundly, profoundly tired for completely different reasons. You know, they have no home for the uh, colloquial expressions might be useful. Like just someone's lost their mojo. Let someone yeah. who's who's normally very active, loves exercise, disappointment and resentment could be just pull them down. And they, they kind of go down fighting like like uh, very everything is half hearted. And that would be a remedy like sepia, which is made from the ink of the cuttlefish. And women often need that when their marriages go sour. And, but they they still like to dance. They're natural women, but they they feel like they don't know where they are in life. And they, they just get flattened out and apathetic. It's a very important remedy for women. And the, the existential issue in there that I would boil the whole thing down to is the idea that hope has become toxic. These are people who are normally very hopeful and they cannot give up their hope completely. That would be impossible. But they, the psyche tries to have it both ways. They're optimistic, um, but they find that every time they hope, they kind of get bitten in the rear end. So they have to stagnate, produces a state of extreme stagnation in them. And it's just like the, the psyche says, okay, I'm stagnating. Everything's okay. It seems to be working. Oh, damn, I hoped. 
and now you've got to start it all over again. So that's, that's again, two remedies that can talk, speak to uh, exhaustion, um, but they're very different themes. The carbovegetabilis does not have this um, mental and emotional picture, but the CPU so, does. Since you were talking about hope and we were talking about suicidal ideation, maybe we could talk about a little bit of that. But now that you see that, now that you were saying like you have that hope, then you have that little bit of you're feeling great. And then something else happened just at the moment where you're feeling good and it brings you back down. And, and that's yeah, the yeah, emotional yeah. cycle. Yeah. That's and a so dynamic. So I, yeah, that's that particular dynamic. You get ensnared in that. And then the remedy actually um, cures you, cures you of that. People who've gone through sepia, I'll tell you say more about sepia in terms of uh, the theme, because there's so much fun to learn this. That's the ink of the cuttlefish, right? Cuttlefish is a very smart fish. And it's, it's, its trick is to squirt ink into the water when it's attacked. So yeah. now the attacker can't see the fish. But you know, the cuttlefish doesn't know where it is either. So the, the, the metaphor is the waters are muddied. The waters are muddied. I don't know where I am. So one of the ways I identify sepia as a remedy is I'll ask the woman, tell me something. Where are you in life? And I'll get a response. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's un very unclear. So like if you go from with women, it's, it's much more defined than with men going when your identity is attached to your sexual um, identity. Um, for women, the, the per first period is, is a much bigger deal than for men. First sexual experience, being pregnant, men have nothing like that. Um, uh, menopause, um, being married. So if, you, if those, those changes are not negotiated well, if there's prob a problem in your life at that point, sepia is one of the remedy states that can come out. You just don't know where you are in life. What? I was, I, where'd my slim, sexy body go? I'm swollen like a pumpkin. This is ridiculous. Who am I? Who am I? You know, uh, in menopause, uh, I'm what? what? Within a flash, I go from being a reproductive woman to being barren? Are you kidding me? So it can be confusing. And this is reflected by the Materia Medica of the remedy sepia. And, but, uh, yeah. wow, it's, you know, I'm just getting flashes. I don't know where they're coming from, but basically where a lot of this information was probably carnal knowledge in our ancestors, you know, and that where did that big that that giant chunk of time where we've lost all this history and what you've been doing is going back and getting this ancestral carnal knowledge that you know we would probably my mother would have taught me you know when you get older and this happens to you you'll you'll do this so you'll need this you know what i mean and you have these um remedies and so basically I feel like you're collecting this information again and kind of providing it like we're going, we're going back into this type of, um, you know, natural you life. Know, you may not have to go back that far in time. I mean, the knowledge about botanical medicine is very, very old. I mean, among indigenous people goes way, way back. Um, but homeopathy, it's, it's, it's uh, well, all the remedies have different histories, but going back to sepia again, my understanding of how that remedy was discovered was that a homeopath was sent to the home of a painter who had, um, who was very stagnated and, and depressed and uh, didn't quite know where he was. And the homeopath noticed that when he was painting, he would dip his, his brush into a substance and put it on his mouth. What was that substance? That was, they were using sepia, you know, the color sepia. He was using sepia um, to, uh, as, 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 as a color, as, 
And the homeopath said, well, that would be something worth researching. And that's, that's kind of how that happened. And that wasn't that so long ago. I mean, that was a couple of hundred years ago, not that ancient kind of knowledge. But we have provings both that are deliberate. As I say, we have real research with subjects and accidental provings as well from, from poisonings. Um, one of the most famous stories of this is the remedy Lachesis, which is made from the uh, venom of the, of the Brazilian Bushmaster snake. Again, again, we have we get make powerful medicines from really nasty stuff. And the 1900s, when homeopathy was was very well known, was had a, had a, was was quite prominent. It was front page news on the New York Times when Constantine Herring, this famous homeopath, voyaged to Brazil looking for the most deadly snake he could find because he knew it would become a good remedy. Okay, he found that snake. It was the Brazilian Bushmaster, and he was playing around with it. And either it bit him, or he he. Uh, he exposed himself to the venom, and he was very, very close to death, rail, you know, ranting and, and on, on his deathbed. His wife was with him and wrote down everything that he'd, he'd said and also how he, how he appeared, what his gestures were. And he was rambling, talking tremendously fast. And this, he survived it. But this is the ab- absolute core of the Lachesis remedy. Someone, if somebody comes and they're const- they can't stop talking, maybe I'm, I'm, in, I'm in that state now. <laughs> I love really. it, but if but they they there's a, a compulsiveness to that to that they're talking, like a, like a steam kettle letting off steam, and all the other symptoms fit into it. That's the remedy that you would think of. Also, the people who need lachesis have lots of throat issues. They have problems with swallowing. Um, they don't want anything tight around their neck, and metaphorically, that relates to a snake too, because a snake is all neck, right? Um, and there's a lot of things like that. But I mean, that was a that was one way that substance was researched. Um, Fortunately, he, he survived it, but uh, sometimes we get information from somebody who, who, doesn't, who doesn't even survive. But we'd much rather research it on healthy individuals who, on, in, a, in a manageable amount. <laughs> and so um, what, if this is a road you want to go down, I'm, I mean, there's not a lot of you out there. There's your book, which is a great way. But, you know, when you're looking for support, um, what do you tell people? Are there more people getting into this or is there, is it traditional that the acupuncturist is also going to have some of this information or? Well, Gina, 500 million people around the world use homeopathy. It's not, it's not a mystery. It's, and I'm not the only homeopath. Believe me, I'm not. In this country has a, a, a very peculiar history because it's been attacked so ferociously by the medical profession. And that's because it's such a worthwhile rival and it's superior in so many ways. I will tell you if I mean if I'm hit by a car and I need surgery, I'll absolutely go and get surgery. Go to the doctor. You know, yes. um, there's, there's various things, and I love nursing. There are many aspects of conventional medicine I really value, but on the whole, homeopathy really uh, is is superior to pharmaceutical medicine, really uh, almost entirely. I, I have to say that. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, but, uh, no, no, no worry. It's not that it is. It is. It is. Um, my goodness. I mean, there are hundreds of homeopathic medical schools in India. It is central to the practice in, in Switzerland, covered by, by their healthcare system. Until it was recently attacked so ferociously in England, um, it was absolutely central to the uh, public health system. The Royal London Homeopathic Hospital still stands, and it's a, it's a, a tourist attraction in, in London. The lo- Royal Family of Lo- England has used it for, for, for uh, many, many years. If you go to South America or many, many places uh, in Central America, you will see homeopathic pharmacies everywhere. Um, it's just it will not go away, even though it's it's truth is inconvenient to the medical profession. The remedies are not patented. They do not cause side effects. 
they cause aggravation effects, which is the, the body tr body's trying to throw something off, but that is not a side effect. Side effect of a medicine is the body saying, gee, give me a break. I can't assimilate this. I can't accommodate this. You're making me worse. I can't stand it. And then the doctor has to make this very heavy assumption. Hmm, in my opinion, the good outweighs the bad. Take it again, take it again. And we get into yeah. a lot of trouble with that. Homeopathy is really, I, I sounds so controversial to say this, but actually superior in many ways um, to conventional medication. It's slower and it's more honest because it pr prompts the body to heal on its own. It's not, it's, it's not prompting, it's not like a bulldozer that's running you over. Um, so I, I was really lucky when I first moved uh, in, in 1987, when I was 17, I met a doctor, Dr. Plants, and he was both. And so he would always try other remedies before he would try the other. And he was so rare um, that, um, and he would teach me about different things, you know, why don't you go try black walnut or, you know, and little things like that, or, or to do different stuff. And so I really appreciated that. But he has had serious um, repercussions uh, in the medical industry because of that. Uh, they've actually come after him for that. So, um, but in the U.S., um, when I go to Europe, like in France, they do have the different homeopathic stuff. There in Europe, it is definitely more prevalent to, to go ahead and try these different things. But in the U.S., especially when you're young. You literally are taught just to go to the doctor for everything. Like it is. You know, a, Gina, there was an era, an era called the non, era of the non-consultation clause. Just to give you an idea how how serious the antipathy is, um, the rivalry and the, the bitterness. Where the do doctor said, even if you, if a physician spoke to a homeopath, he'd lose his license. And it happened that even there would be there would be, there would be um, physicians who are married to to uh, a homeopath. And they they would have a conversation. They'd lose their license. That's how how vicious it was. Um, so there's no it's no accident. There's not a not a lot of love lost. And it's not because homeopathy doesn't work. It's because in in the 1800s homeopaths were rich. <laughs> Everybody preferred going to them. And the medical the medical profession said this can't be. They're eating our lunch. We have to stop this. And that's uh, the, the campaign became so political. There's no reason why. If you really care about what's well, the well-being of a client, why you would not look at everything, uh, you know, with on an equal playing field. What's best for my client? You wouldn't attach yourself to some dogma and just give something because a pharmaceutical company needs to make money on it. Um, yeah. You know, you wouldn't ban a whole kind of class of medicine or attack it because it was effective because you were having a hard time making a living. Um, that's spiritually incorrect. I don't think yeah. that you'd argue with me about that. No, and I actually worked for a law firm for a while doing mass torts, and um, we were doing, you know, campaigns against pharmaceutical companies for really crazy things, uh, like an antidepressant that they had handed out to all the prisoners who ever wanted it in prison, and um, in the male prisons, and they were developing female breasts from the um, yeah. actual medication, and they literally had to go have mastectomies. It was terrible. And so they had these lawsuits, but the company puts aside, they know they're going to get sued. So they just, yeah. that's just in their budget. And they, they constantly, they constantly break the law. And you're right. They put money aside. Uh, they're, they're, it's, they're actually in many ways, a criminal organization, criminals. Uh, and yeah. I'm not just saying that they're constantly being uh, constantly in court and uh, defending themselves, giving, paying, paying huge amounts out, but they make so much money that they can afford it. It is part of the business practice. Um, yep. 
And that also includes, of course, attacking people who give them any kind of a hard time. Um, yep. This is not so different from how the mafia works. Absolutely. So I feel like bringing it into light is actually helping. Um, and it was sad because the lawyers would really give people hope. Uh, and at the end of the days, the lawyers were getting the most of the money. And, um, yeah. you know, so at the end of the day, the, the person was still losing. So hopefully when you can turn to this and start to get more education um, and finding these different ways, um, what are some of the other things, interesting stories that you have for us today? That <laughs> well, think? I mean, you're talking about suicidality. I mean, that, I could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, please. Um, but I have a couple of, yeah, I've got so many stories. I, there's a few in a few interesting case histories in there. I, I do... Um, analyses of some well-known figures uh, like uh, Phil Connors from the um, uh, Groundhog Day movie, what his remedy might be, and also some uh, Greek myths, uh, um, Sisyphus, for example, and, you know, various, various, I analyze uh, Hamlet from Shakespeare, what his existential problem is. But I'll go back to, to a suicidality. And by the way, of course, Hamlet is famous for having said, to be or not to be, this... Uh, famous suicidal question. He was just monkeying around. He didn't really mean it. Um, but, okay, I'm going to mention, describe two very significant suicide remedies in homeopathy. And um, you won't make any mistake. You won't, cannot possibly mistake one for the other once you know of it. Ever read in the paper that so-and-so killed himself? And you say, well, who, him? He was the valedictorian of his class. Everybody loved him. He, was, he wound up being a CEO of this country, company, he, he was a leader in the church, just a hugely responsible, capable person. Capable pers him, of all people? Um, this is the remedy, Orem, which is made from gold. Okay? Um, people who need that remedy, they're as good as gold. Language is very useful. They were up there living their lives at the very peak. They lived their lives for God, for the highest possible purpose. So what's wrong with that? And why does that predispose you to suicide? Because they put everything on their shoulders, they carry everything themselves, that's their go-to mode. Now, what if that go-to mode exhausts you? What if you take on too much? What if uh, you're so invested in, in doing everything right and someone criticizes you and you're exhausted? There's no place else to go. Boom. No place else. Um, they don't have a, a, a step-down mechanism. Now, I've given Gorham many times to people who are not suicidal, but that same idea is there. I'm living for God. And um, I take everything on my, on, my, on my shoulders. I'll give you something from the Bible, which I think is very interesting. So um, in Exodus, Moses, this is, a, of course, it's, everybody knows this story, um, is angry at the Jews for having, worshiping the golden calf. Right? What's that all about? They're not living for God. They're living for idols. They're living for materialism. And what Moses does, and I, I, a friend, my colleague, friend, colleague of mine, has, has been researching Moses within the Egyptian tradition and has discovered that he, Moses was a physician and, and a shaman. Um, I, I would, even before I knew that, I, would, I said when, when Moses melted down the gold and he fed it to the Israelites, he was actually performing homeopathic research. He was doing exactly what happens in a homeopathic proving. So he, I don't know how he knew that, but he did. As I say, gold... As a homeopathic remedy, well, he, he was he was not doing the giving it as a remedy. He was doing the proving aspect of it. They needed to consume the gold so that they could live for a higher purpose. Mm. So, metaphysically or shaman shamanically, that's why Moses 
fed that to the to the Israelites so that they would get the feeling of gold and live for a higher purpose. In a tiny amount, it would be the opposite of firm, it would be the opposite situation. Somebody has is prone to being suicidal because he or she lives too too much for God and is too responsible. And therefore the, the remedy in a dilute amount would help them to become live a little bit more balanced. It has a huge pr- impact on the heart. And again, language is useful. We say our heart is heavy, or this has touched my heart. Orem is also a tremendous grief remedy. Um, for it's not for, so much for its impact on the on the lungs, but for the for the heart. This has touched my heart. People who take things to heart, and that's why they're attracted to to listening to classical music and to praying. All these things pertain to that Orem picture. Now, the other remedy, which is for su- suicidality, very prominent, is very different, and that is natrum sulfurica, something sometimes called glauber salt. Now, this is a person who's not living for the highest purpose, not for a bad purpose either, but it's somebody who in their life has has been too many times been treated like he or she doesn't count. They just don't count. It's a grief remedy. That, that is a grief remedy. They're treated, they're dis- discounted. And they brood over this, and they were likely to have loose stools, be very mm-hmm. sensitive to dampness, their relationship to music will be interesting too. They'll be kind of melancholy people and they'll listen to music and get very sad over it. On the other hand, they'll also be very objective. They'll have it be drawn to facts. Anyway, this kind of person, why does this person become suicidal? Because when her buttons are pushed and she feels one more time that she's being treated like she's not listened to, doesn't count, the psyche says, gee, it's like I'm not even here. Who would even care? I mean, what's the point? You know, and that in that mindset, they would be prone to hanging themselves, something like that. That's my dog. It's probably <laughs> so. There's yeah. two different suicidality remedies. There are other ones also, but yeah. those are the two most interesting ones where the picture is clearest. And people who commit suicide for two entirely different reasons, and um, yeah, those those remedies um, would be very useful. J. Anthony um, Lucas, who wrote Common Ground, do you know this story? No very famous book. Uh, no one should move to the Boston area without reading Common Ground. It was a okay. whole series of, a whole long, long series of pro- TV programs about it. It was, it had to do with the busing crisis in, in Boston in the 70s. He was a, he was one of these people who had put everything on his shoulder, just you know, work was, was very, very dedicated, wrote this fantastic book, he got all kinds of prizes for it. Now, later on in his life, he wrote a book called Big Trouble, which was like a 600 page book about a labor crisis in Minnesota. And he was being interviewed. I think he was in a completely exhausted state and he was being interviewed and someone asked him a question that questioned the premise of the book. And Hop, and uh, um, Lucas sort of was stunned and he went home and killed himself. Oh. Um, that's that kind of person. Later on, the book won all kinds of awards. But in my opinion, a remedy like Oram would have saved his life. If he had taken that, would not, this would not have happened to him. So Orm is O R E M. No, A U R U M. A U R Orm. Yeah. Okay. I don't know it. I was uh, trying to look it up and I couldn't. It's find on the it. periodic. That's the A U is the symbol on on the periodic table for gold. Oh yeah. Oh, you went. I can't. Are you muted? Oh, sorry. Okay, now I can um, hear you. Yeah. What was the second remedy you were talking about? The second remedy is natrum sulfuricum. Okay. N-A-T-R-U-M-S-U-L-P-H-I-C-U-M. 
And please don't, I don't want any listener to go and take these remedies just because I talked about them. If you want to take a remedy, absolutely see a homeopath. Don't mess around with that because the high potencies, you will not understand your response. It will, it can, it will kick something up in the beginning because a remedy tricks your vital force into converting a problem into a, a chronic problem into something like an acute problem. So you're going from, from an, an chronic problem, which is very useful to the pharmaceutical profession. <laughs> um, you've got good days and bad days, but you're always stuck there. And an acute problem, the benefit of that is that you actually get to the other side of it. You have the vital force identifies a problem. It could be a pathogen or an emotional insult makes a big deal out of it, and then fights it off. That's like a sine curve, right? Yeah. And, our, and that's the opposite of how society looks at illness now. We are terrified of acute illness. Everybody's scared out of their pants about it, but they're very at home with chronic illness because there's so many medicines that can sedate you or you know, suppress your symptoms for that. Homeopaths have completely the opposite idea. We'd rather you, you utilize the doctor inside yourself, which is your immune system and your vital force, engage with something genuinely, and fight it off. This is the, again, advanced placement common sense, the idea that, you know, face your demons rather than escape them. Yes, and so, you're supposed um, to live. Your point, point in being alive is to live fully, as you said many times yourself. You, yeah. you know, you're not, we're not meant to just either just be sedated and sipping pina coladas on the beach all day. We are meant to learn things in this life and engage with our problems and process our karma. Yeah, I, I, I commented in somebody's post yesterday. I was, uh, if we got the answers to the test, you know, in life, what would be the point, you know, so it's very good. You do have to do that thing. And again, I'll just remind everybody. Yes, this is the reason why we're actually even highlighting this, get the book, if you, you know, as well, uh, the emotional roots of chronic illness, and then have that name in your head and see, and see if it seems right to you. And then go to the homeopath and ask them what they think after looking at you wholly. So just, Again, don't go out and do it yourself. And we're going to put some disclaimers on, you know, on here. But that's uh, just so you guys know, again, uh, as Jerry mentioned, um, go to a homeopath. And I, what I really love about this, though, is how often does a person who says, I feel like I'm suicidal, I'm going to go to a homeopathic doctor. This is really great information because, number one, um, a lot of people who have suicidal ideation is a complete secret. You know, it, it it's more acceptable to be a drug addict or an alcoholic or anything than to be suicidal, you know? So it, it is a completely hidden um, pain that a lot of people have. And if you can, you know, when you, and, and there's a, such a huge fear to go to a full Western doctor about it too. You automatically think you're going to be in a 5150 hole, even if you tell somebody because they don't know what to do. So this is a great, helpful thing it, to go to a homeopathic doctor who you can feel more safe with. You can do, you know, there's a huge fear. They're going to put me on this medicine. I'm not going to be able yeah. to be creative or uh, make love back to my to, wife. Yeah, um, back to my examples, if you're in an Orem state and you take everything as your own responsibility, it will not occur to you that someone else can help you. It will not occur to you. You're just going to say, this is my problem. I've got to solve this myself and you'll exhaust yourself. So more, it may often be the case that someone else has to bring bring someone like that or the natrum sulfuricum state. Someone just says, well, why would I deserve any, any help? I'm, I'm hardly here at all. You know, then it's not going to be like, you have to have a little bit of a grain of, of health to say, ask for, ask for help for someone else, you know? Yeah. But there, 
in any case, yeah, you, you don't even need to lead the, read the book to see a homeopath. You would, if, if the job of a homeopath is to deconstruct your condition, to take your, make an interview, figure out what, you're, what the meaning of what you're saying is, and also what you're not saying. The body talks, the body's symptoms, as I, in some of the examples I gave before, are, are an expression, the body revealing what the inner message is. I have this adage that acute illness detoxifies us, but chronic illness informs. If the chronic illness symptoms can be can be interpreted, um, then the homeopath can prescribe for it. And the benefit, the additional benefit of that is demystifying what has happened to you. You know, the mystery, people being so fearful of their illnesses and being so, having been, you know, bought this idea that you're not going to know what's going on with your body. You do not have a right to know about it. There are tests that can be taken, but of course they're inconclusive. We have lost agency for our health. And uh, our, we are meant to learn from everything, of course, not just illness. But um, illness is a great, great teacher. Um, and the idea is not to leave you in it just because it's the great teacher, but to see what is what it's, what it's pushing us to change and so that we can grow and evolve as, as spiritual beings. So you must find when you are out in nature, do you do any nature walks and just kind of look at for... I mean, you must be fascinated by every living thing around I absolutely you. Love, I love forest bathing. I love my hiking mountains. Um, it's, uh, you don't, it's not just homeopathy. It's being part of nature, being respectful of nature, becoming part of it as much as possible, being humble. It's hard these days. We live in we are such electronic environments, digital environments. We live in, um, we, there's so much, you know, just our, our workspaces, our life spaces. There's not a lot of green around us. We have to make an effort to go to that. People flourish on vacations when they when they go to the mountains or they go to the lakes. I know I do. Um, yeah, there's many things that we we those things will. If you, if you go into the mountains and into the forest and you realize, my God, I feel really good here. You look around. It's not an accident. <laughs> you know, you're you're among you're among very vibrant kindred spirits that we we, we need to retain a connection with the soil, the earth. You know the the trees, the mountains, the sky, the air, and a lot of people are finally talking about this. But now a new word they were calling it grounding, but now it's earthing. Um, but so the idea also is that, for example, if you were to take um, like live dill or live fennel or whatever and grind it up, like it has a, a that even that uh, you know picked. It is, you know, out of its natural source has like a consciousness that that element. Yes, everything or... does. So we find this out in the provings. We find this. Those are extremely interesting things to participate in. If you took a substance over a period of time, and uh, no one told you what it was, and you kept a journal and you wrote down all kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, you would the, the the person who organizes the proving would collate all those strange symptoms out and then there'd be a big discussion of them and the, the bit by bit the issue would come out the existential issue there um, that is actually part of the consciousness of that of that substance um, and uh, that's the, supposedly science has moved away from this kind of metaphysical thinking this is this is the, the line that we were taught left and right in our schools science does not do that science is totally objective we just rely totally on uh, on quantitative measures and so forth. There's a lot lost with that. Um, we absolutely can enter into the consciousness of, of, of other of, of, of materials and substrates. And, um, you know, the, the entire table of, of, of period, the periodic table of elements has been interpreted from the themes of the, of the, of the individual elements, which is why they often have the names of Greek gods. 
and and the myths of, that attach to those Greek gods are actually played out in the uh, table of periodical periodic elements. I can tell you stories about that. It's again, it's the sort of thing I fell in love with, which is absolutely fascinating. Do you have time for one? You want to hear yeah, one? Yeah, go for it. Tell me your best one. <laughs> oh, I'll give you one. Okay. So there's a remedy. There's an element on the periodic table called polonium. Okay. Polonium was discovered by Marie Curie, who was much more, who was famous for having found radium. And she was in, she's a Polish woman and she was in France, uh, had looking at these substances and analyzing them. And there's a substance there that she encountered and she didn't know what it was and she started studying it. And as she's studying it, she was very, very nostalgic for Poland. And she named it polonium based on the state of mind that she was in. So this is also the realm where the synchronicities play out a lot. But let me let me unpack this for you even further. So she was very nostalgic when she discovered Napoleonium and she attached that that name to it. She wanted to be back in Poland. Well, completely separate from that, when people with their, did a uh, proving of polonium, again, giving people uh, healthy individuals a certain amount of it, not enough to poison them, but just enough to bring out a picture. Guess what happened? What? They became highly nostalgic. Um, they became very, very, you know, they became much more interested in the past. They got very nostalgic for the past. So that actually came through the provings and it was blinded. Now, beyond that, polonium is also used in the preservation of old movies. It preserves the past. Now, get this. Listen to this. Uh, do you remember when this Russian expatriate from uh, was, was poisoned in London? I forget his name. His long Russian name is a. He oh, was. Uh, was a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, he was poisoned in London. Yes. He was uh, poisoned by the poisoned by the KGB. Yep. It's in, incontrovertible. The poison that was used was polonium. <laughs> now, what does that mean? Okay, first of all, it's not like rat poison. You can't you can't get polonium easily. That's a very very difficult substance to get. You have to go to quite a quite a long length to obtain that. Why? Would the Russians choose polonium to re, to poison this guy? And my yeah. theory is, they're saying this is a message that says, "Hey, you think you're free? You think that the KGB are a bunch of dinosaurs from the past, right? Uh -huh. That what you think? Take you're going to get polonium. This is going to remind you and everybody that the past is alive. It's a kind of nostalgia. It's poisonous nostalgia. Mm -hmm. The remedy uh that I the, the movie that I attach to this to this remedy, which I anytime I want to teach it. Is this fantastic film called Sunset Boulevard? Uh, I don't know if you know that. Um, so the, the actress who's 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 been very faded from the silent movie era. She lives totally for nostalgia. She lives in a dilapidated mansion, watching her old movies over and over again. You know, and uh, she someone she lures someone into her her lair there and it winds up destroying him. But that that movie Sunset Boulevard really very perfectly embodies. The idea of polonium from the point of view of nostalgia and the preservation of the past. These are synchronicities that homeopaths get, uh, live with every day. Very peculiar things happen, connecting things that up that don't seem like they're connected. But within the, within the field of energy, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence energetically that Marie, Marie Curie was nostalgic when she happened to identify by that. She was in touch with it in some, re some way, and it's not, it was not a random selection. And the fact that she could not possibly have known that it would be used to, to preserve movies. She couldn't possibly have known that. It's, so it's a very interesting kind of a thing, how this happens. 
and all various elements on the periodic table, they're represented by their name for Greek, um, Greek mythical characters whose story likewise is attached to the meaning of the, of the uh, element and its use in, in, in homeopathy. And that was a, in 2006, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko. So. Ah, you found it. That's right. That's right. You can look it up. Yeah, he was poisoned by polonium. And um, I think I'm probably the only individual outside the homeopathic community who's wondered why that, you know, come up, come up with that explanation and why polonium no, was chosen. And it was, was not done consciously, consciously by the Russians. I think so at a subconscious level, that's what they were trying to do. I don't think they, it was a conscious choice. No, but I, that was horrific when that was very scary. And I think he's in still in prison. They ha, they have him in prison now. And yeah, um, but you know, okay, that's whoa. That's all really. Oh, one last thing. I know. You know what? We're in this age of wanting to not age. You know, um, and I feel I tell a lot of people that, and in my opinion, that you know if you balance all these things out and you including the spiritual part of you or if it's if it's just energy say if you don't even want to you don't believe in uh spirituality or soul you don't have to it could be just energy but i feel like when you kind of when you're missing the energetic part of yourself or working on the energetic part of yourself and just trying to you know do the the like the de-aging stuff that we do the the regular stuff like you're missing the whole point uh, do you have any kind of context about, you know, this keeping this youthful energy or vibrancy? Yeah, okay. I'll try something. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, we all, we're all going to age and die, and it's absolutely necessary that we go through those stages. The question is not, you know, not, not, not to fear any of these one particular things. Um, so I'm going to sort of pull rank here and, 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 and discuss a remedy for where that's a, a, a disproportionate value. So the remedy arsenicum, made from arsenic, right? Arsenic, oh, terrible stuff. You're going to make medicine out of arsenic? It's one of our, our, our go-to remedies. Um, and arsenic is used as a preservative in lots of foods, actually. So the polarity there, it's, it's uh, yeah, you, you, arsenic is all over the place. It's both a preservative and a tissue destroyer. Now, as a homeopathic remedy, when someone needs arsenic, they are really worried about death. They really feel like they don't have much time. They're getting old, and there's very little margin for error. These are perfectionist people who... Now, look, if you, if you actually are poisoned by genuine arsenic, what happens is you get what's called the presentiment of death. It's coming, it's coming, and your circulation contracts within your body. Your extremities get cold, but there's usually some kind of a burning sensation inside. But the feeling is, I don't have much time. Um, there's a little margin for error. I've got to get my affairs in order. So people like that, um, they're worried, deep, very worried about their own death, but also that of the, of the security of their circle of love, their relatives. Is everything going to be okay for what's, who's left behind? There's not much time. I'm getting old. I mean, you don't have to be poisoned by arsenic to feel this way. This is a remedy state that comes out uh, as it's express, expressed as um, perfectionism. I'll tell you, I will tell you a funny story about this. One of my favorite stories. Well, wait, you, you mentioned it was uh, another word that it cut out before you said arsenic. Was, was there another, was there a word um, for yeah, it? Yeah, the, the feeling when you need arsenic, arsenicum, the remedy made from arsenic, then um, 
This is for people who are highly, highly anxious because they're terrified of making a mistake. But it, the reason they're like that is because they feel there's not much time and they're unusually sensitive to issues around aging. So this is not everybody. This is what is called the homeopathic delusion. Now, the good thing about someone who needs that remedy is that they, they would make fantastic project, project supervisors. Uh, if, I want, if I had something that I needed to trust to someone else to get it done, I would love somebody who was an arsenicum personality to take over, to take responsibility for that. Because their sense of responsibility, they, they know they can't, there's no margin for error. And my funny story about that is this. I was uh, asked to give a presentation at a psychotherapy office once. And I was late to get there, and I, I somehow it was a lunch a lunchtime presentation. And I, I what's the big deal here? A few be a few people there. Um, I'm stuck in traffic. I got there late. When I got to this office, to my astonishment, there were 30 people in there, all sitting there with their arms crossed, really annoyed because this they were going to get CEUs or something for this presentation. And that was late, and then they, they they couldn't eat their lunch. They were pretty mad at me. Well, somewhat like that. Anyway, I said, oh oh my gosh. Um, so I decided to talk about anxiety because that's, that would be the sort of thing that come up a lot in a psycho, psychotherapeutic practice. So I described this remedy, uh, as I say, just all the things I said to you. Then I said, it has an affinity for a certain hairstyle that I have noticed. When it's women, they tend to have a page, they're often it's someone with a page boy haircut that looks like a helmet. Ever see that, like that page boy hair, hair, hairstyle? Yeah. There would be a okay. brunette. Homeopathy is politically incorrect. Um, we go by appearances. We, everything is grist for our mill. And I was saying that how I would like to have an assistant who, was, uh, who needed this remedy. Of course, I'd give the remedy, but I, I would know that this person would go to any length to get the thing done. So I looked through the room and I said, yeah, so this would be the kind of person you'd want as your office manager. <laughs> so I looked through the room and in the way in the back of the room, there was a woman standing there who had this page boy haircut. And as I'm talking about what my, my fantasy for a, a, um, an office manager would be, I said, it would look like someone like that. Oh, my goodness. And yes, it's true. I identified the office manager. Okay. Wow. Interesting. So from that point on, everything, I had them in the palm of my hand. It went very, very well. And I got a lot of clients out of it. <laughs> so, um, but, that's, but why that is, I mean, the helmet actually, you can, it's not random. It's like, I can get it done. I'm, I'm going to go into this. Like I've got a helmet on, I'm, I'm going to go and do that. That's the positive side of it. On the negative side, someone like that would be prone to having all kinds of digestive problems, skin skin problems, um, uh, circulatory problems. They could also, another exhaustion remedy, by the way, going back to what we talked about earlier, that state can be very exhausting. And the feeling at the, at the, at the existential level is not much time, I'm going to die. Um, I, will every, everybody around me be okay? But they, they, they sublimate that, they turn it into something good, to use Freud's language, by getting everything, making everything done perfectly. If I get everything done perfectly, then there maybe there will be enough time. Everything will get done. Oh, yes. People that love to get things done. That's me. Um, do you want to take us out with any final comments? My final comments? Um, people should learn to value their illness in the sense that it's worth exploring what it's about. We should not be so prone to fear that we lose perspective and lose, lose control of our lives and lose a sense of why we are alive. Homeopathy is magnificent in that it's a tool that allows us to explore what's going on with us. I, I do recommend my book for giving you a flavor of that. Um, there are five core existential questions in that book, and um, I'm, I don't, we don't have time to go into it. The remedies are then repre are, represent the, you know, subcategories of those five questions. 
everybody will relate to them. Um, it's not it's not so esoteric that nobody will understand it. There are lots of anecdotes in there and stories and case histories. But I'd like people not to be so fearful um, and recognize the extent how, how much fear works against them and you know how well it works for the economic uh, machine. Um, that's not, you know, that's good for economics, but we, should, we, we are responsible for our lives, for our bodies, for our spiritual development, for our evolution. And I, I urge people to, to take that seriously um, because uh, you don't want to live a worthless life. Actually, one of my existential questions was at the very last one, which I relate to the, what, what the cancer miasm is, is this one. Was the, birth, was my, the insurrection of my birth worthwhile? So from that point standpoint, everybody's birth is an insurrection against the status quo. The world's going along fine, now you come along. And <laughs> the world has to accommodate you and you have to have an impact. Now, only at some points in our life do we think take that question seriously. Um, the founder of homeopathy, Samuel Hahnemann, has a statue in Washington, DC, and on, in Latin on that statue, and he lived there to, to quite an old age, it says, "My life, I did not live in vain. That question mattered to him very, very much. Um, frankly, it matters to me too. I, I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be sitting on the beach sipping pina coladas my whole life. I want, I want to get something done and stuff that only I can get done. But everybody has that issue. Again, your your birth is an insurrection against the status quo, and everybody has to actually have an insurrection. If you overadapt to the needs of others and you only live for other people's needs for you, you will not have, you will not become a fully, fully mature human being. So that existential question. Um, is, is well they're all all five of them are important but that's the one I would like to leave you with let let your let be feel free to look to explore the meaning of your life mm -hmm. Learn and also from it and, for yourself is not good either there's a balance so it's a, yeah yeah you, you will get sick if you you will get sick if you do not come to terms with this existential question they do not have yes or no answers existential questions do not have yes or no answers but they have a powerful charge and in the arsenicum example the feeling is my God, I'm going to die. Uh, uh, there's no much, not much time. Now, I can't tell you you're not going to die. I, there's no yes or no an answer to that. But it still has a charge that a remedy like arsenicum can dissolve. So when you graduate from that remedy, you say, what was that all about? Yeah, I know I'm going to die. But I mean, yeah, there's plenty of time. Um, it's very different. Mm. It's very different and very helpful to make for the soul, for the vital force to have gone through that kind of transformation. And on top of that, you get a perspective. You say, gee, I wonder what was that, was that all about? How come, what was I, what was that all about? That's interesting. Which, so what's the truth about life? That there's not much time or that there is time? I mean, it will pr pr prompt some philosophical thinking maybe, but uh, that, that's okay. We, we are all philosophers, actually. We, we're meant to think about why we're alive. We're meant to think. That's a great way. You guys, it's been a really, it's been a great hour with you, uh, Jerry. I appreciate you so much. This has been a lot of fun, a really informative. You know, we just love to get these great stories. You've collected all this information. It's, you know, we appreciate that you're sharing it with us. Um, everybody, I'm going to link as much as possible from what we talked about that I can find in here. Um, so many fascinating stories. Um, please reach out to me if you need any clarification. And again, go get a... a homeopathic doctor or someone to help you answer these questions don't do it on your own be careful a little bit of disclaimer there but thank you so much thank you jerry and it's been a great hour and we appreciate you guys thank you it's been a liberated healer
Great pleasure to be here, Gina. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us online at theliberatedhealer.com, on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast, or on Facebook at The Liberated Healer. Give us a follow, subscribe, send us a message if you so feel, and thank you for your support. Yes.